Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. I'm Managing Editor Heather Bell, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Senior ETF Analyst, Samit Roy. Hey, Samit. Hey, Heather. Great to be here with you. Always good to be chatting with you. Today, our guest is Will Rind, the founder and CEO of Granite Shares, an ETF issuer. We'll chat with him later. But right now, you and I have a lot to talk about, Samit. Yeah, Heather, you actually wrote this interesting article about the death knell, potentially the death knell of the ETN wrapper. You talked about how Barclays is shutting down a whole bunch of ETNs. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, um, they're going to close 21 ETNs. I believe their entire lineup is something like 25 or 26 funds. So uh, ultimately only five ETNs in the iPath lineup will be left. Um, they're some of the largest ones, but these are mostly uh, the commodities ETNs that are closing. The DJP, the broad commodity ETN is going to remain open but all the other ones, the ones covering different sectors of commodities, the ones covering individual commodities, those will all be redeemed, I believe, as of June 14th. And this is kind of huge. First of all, it's almost all of the iPath lineup, and they've been kind of the dominant force in ETNs since the concept uh, first came out. I don't even know how long ago that was. But with these closures, that's going to reduce the number of ETNs on the market to just about 60. And that is less than half of the ones that were still left standing after the COVID crash. And the COVID crash is when, like, I think about 50 ETNs closed during that. So, there's been some major reductions in the size of the ETN space. And that's interesting. Um, it seems like the wrappers under threat of going into extinction. Um, but then we do also have these other issuers like Microsectors that launches uh, the triple leveraged um, or triple inverse and other permutations of exposures to certain uh, kind of like hot areas. Yeah, that, that's super crazy. Like 25% or a quarter of ETN shutting down in a single day. Do we know why this is happening? Did the assets in these ETNs fall to a really low level or is it just out of the blue? The largest, I believe, of these ETNs that are closing the IPAF products is, I think, the copper ETN. And I think that has about 70 million in assets. So, but there's also a bunch that have like, you know, 3 million, 2 million. These have never really had what I'd call sticky assets because, you know, you know, the commodity space, um, certain commodities go into vogue and go out of vogue. And you know, the commodity super cycle that we saw, you know, earlier in this century fizzled out. And I think that was when uh, a lot of people turned away from these products. And I mean, we may have a commodity super cycle starting again, but. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you mentioned also, Heather, that some of these ETNs were the only way to play certain commodities. Is that right? 
Yeah, like lead, nickel, perhaps, uh, soft commodities like cotton and cocoa. There's, you know, they're kind of, they've never been too big, but for someone who wants assets, I mean, access to those commodities, it's, uh, those are the only ways to get it unless you want to go for a broad fund that may encompass them or may not. Yeah, yeah. So I guess people have to turn to the futures market now if they want exposure to those commodities. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. And that could be messy. Yeah. So speaking of commodities, I know natural gas has kind of been tanking. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, so natural gas has been quietly crashing this year. It's pretty crazy. The price of natural gas got up to around $10 per million British thermal units last year, and now they're around $2. So that's an 80% drop, and prices are now at the lowest level since the early days of the pandemic. And there's a few culprits for the decline. One, this year, this winter in the U.S. has been unusually warm, right? And the majority of gas in the U.S. is consumed during the winter, And if you have a warmer winter, that means people aren't turning up their thermostats. And uh, it's obviously leading to less demand uh, for natural gas. Number two, U.S. natural gas production has been very, very strong. We saw last year supply in the U.S. hit a record high. And then this year it's on track to be even higher, 2% higher than last year's record. Then finally, you had this explosion at this liquefied natural gas facility in Texas. And this explosion happened in June, but they didn't bring the plant back online until this February. So for eight months, that facility was unable to export natural gas. So those extra supplies were hitting the domestic market, adding more supply in the US. So you combine all of those factors together and we essentially have this glut of natural gas on our hands today. And, you know, that's why prices are down 80 percent and they're sitting at the lowest level since 2020. And if you look at the worst performing ETF ETP of the year, it's the ProShares Ultra Bloomberg Natural Gas, which is down 80 percent. On the other hand. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. And on the other hand, you have the ultra short Bloomberg Natural Gas. That's an inverse product and it's up 151 percent which makes it the second best performing ETF of the year. The only fund doing better is the Granite Shares 1.5x long NVIDIA daily ETF NVDDL, which is up 151.6%. And NVDL, of course, is one of several single stock ETFs that Granite Shares launched last year. And we are, of course, happy to be speaking with Will Ryan today, who's the founder and CEO of Granite Share. So I think this is the perfect segue to get into that conversation. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you, Samit. Great to be on. I think a great place to start would be with gold, Will. You have the sixth largest physically backed gold ETF in the US today, BAR. And lately, we've been seeing gold hovering around $2,000 per ounce, which is close to a record high. Do you think prices are going to break out? And if so, how high do you think they could go? Well, certainly we've seen you know, really quite an incredible rally since the dollar peaked in September or so last year. And you know, we've achieved 
you know, these heights in gold, you know, over $2,000 an ounce um, in an environment where we've had the highest interest rates, you know, in recent memory. So it's kind of incredible that, that we've got here. But I think that gold is well positioned and indeed can go quite a bit higher than where we are today. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. There's the technical reasons, which we can talk about in terms of the immediate um, Fed sort of pause of interest rates or interest rates being at the top of the hiking cycle and indeed perhaps starting their way down um, towards the end of the year. And we can talk about um, the fact that we may be entering into a recession as well. But I think it's something more or a bigger thing at play, which is this idea of de-dollarization, the idea that the US dollar is slowly slipping as the world's reserve currency. And we're starting to see you know, other countries start to, to trade and pay for things um, in their respective local currencies uh, and moving away from the dollar. And I think, I think longer term, you know, that's the big story. And we've seen that impact, I think, the beginnings in the gold price that we see today. So I think gold, gold can go a lot higher than where we are today. Um, but clearly, the fact that we're even talking about gold at $2,000 with interest rates of you know, 5%, roughly, is a credible story in of itself. Yeah, that, that's super interesting, Will, this whole idea of de-dollarization. I've been hearing a lot more about that in the press and the media. So where is this demand going to come from? Is it other central banks are going to start to diversify their reserves away from the dollar into gold? Is it just ordinary people worried about the dollar losing its international status? They're going to start buying gold ETFs or physical gold bars. Is it going to drive demand in some way? I think we'll drive demand. And, and again, it's always two sides of the coin. So we're already starting to see that in terms of central banks. You know, central banks have been big buyers of gold for a number of years now. That's been a known trend in the market. But I think it's only going to accelerate, um, but particularly as central banks that, you know, and I'm mainly talking about the central banks that will be arguably most active in terms of moving away from the dollar. Um, start to you know, build up more reserves in gold and maybe even sell uh, dollars and buy gold. But moving away from those dollars, there's a combination of you know, selling dollar reserves and a combination of, at the same time, buying gold, which will lead to more demand. Well, with what you've said about kind of the current conditions with um, the dollar slipping as the world's reserve currency, does that pave the way for Bitcoin to fill in some of that gap and compete more with gold on the, on that uh, kind of like level or on that playing field? It's difficult to say. I mean, I think the, the honest answer or the most unbiased answer I can give is that it's too early to tell. But one thing that's interesting is that, you know, the way that Bitcoin has you know, rallied alongside of gold um, since the dollar peaked. And so you could, you could clearly make the argument that you know, Bitcoin is performing in a similar way to gold you know, as an you know, antidote to the dollar. And I think we just don't have enough data to say whether it's truly just as a result of the dollar falling and people looking to other non-dollar assets or whether it's more a result of you know, the risk-on rally that we've seen, particularly since the beginning of the year, and Bitcoin trading more of a risk asset 
and people looking to get back into risk as they have done with other technology stocks so far this year. So I think it's too early to tell. Um, and of course, we, we, we have to talk about the fact that you know, the size of Bitcoin is just uh, meaningfully smaller than the size of the gold market. So I think realistically, um, if we're talking about that being used as a substitute, it's going to be very, very difficult. For individual investors, I think um, you know, we've seen arguably with the collapse of FTX and everything else that Bitcoin is here to stay, but I can't see central banks really using Bitcoin as reserves. I think they want to use their own currencies, um, have their own central bank digital currencies, um, but certainly use gold alongside that. That makes sense, Will. So aside from gold, how about we, we touch on commodities more broadly? Because you do have COMB, which is a broad commodities ETF, and it performed phenomenally in 2021 and 2022. Can you tell us about this ETF and whether you think we're in a commodity super cycle like the early 2000s, or is this something different? I, I think we are. And, you know, I've, I've talked about this uh, several times. And, you know, the, the, the nuance to this story is it's a super cycle that's not going to uniformly benefit every commodity like we saw in the early 2000s. Um, this time, you know, it's always a bit different, um, but the, the, the genesis of the super cycle today is around the energy transformation that we are seeing at a super macro level um, in the world. So transitioning, broadly speaking, away from a world dependent on fossil fuels to one that is much more dependent on renewable and sustainable forms of energy. And broadly speaking, the reason why commodities, I think, will, will do well for some time is because up until a few years ago, commodities have been in a bear market. When commodities were in the bear market, clearly there's a knock-on effect in terms of um, firms not committing capital to develop uh, production resources, not bringing on new supply into the market and indeed being more, I think, let's say, um, efficient stewards of investors' capital by returning any kind of profits largely back to investors in the form of dividends as opposed to reinvesting uh, in the business. And secondly, you know, leading into this narrative about the um, electrification of everything and moving to a much more uh, sustainable energy uh, environment, You've also seen governments really kind of wage war, if you will, on the production of traditional fossil fuels. Um, and what that's meant is the, the rise of the ESG you know, movement um, in one particular way uh, and investors you know, actively divesting from some of these companies. And again, you know, being more active um, in terms of shareholders of some of the major oil companies, et cetera, really affecting policy um, by not uh, encouraging them to you know, drill for more uh, or produce more if it's a, a case of a mining. So supply is really curtailed. Um, we need more commodities. And certainly we need more commodities in the metal space if we're going to affect this transition, which you know, governments want us to affect in the next 10, 20 years. We just don't have the supply at the moment. Um, and that's why I'm bullish on the market. That's why I think we're in a, in a uh, super cycle. So this week, we found out that Barclays is shutting down 21 of its iPath ETNs, and basically all but one of those 
of its commodities ETNs, a lot of those products are the only way to get exposure to certain specific commodities. Do you think that leaves uh, an opportunity for issuers to step in, such as Granite Shares? Uh, potentially. Um, and I think it's something that you know clearly we can look at. I mean, clearly the beauty of the the ETN offering, and obviously for those that perhaps are un- uninitiated, um, ETNs can only be issued by banks. They can't be issued by uh, independent asset managers in the U.S. But uh, the cost of issuing them is very small. In other words, much less than the cost of issuing and maintaining an ETF. So one of the reasons why they were popular when it came to individual uh, commodities, things like that, is the economies of scale were just much better um, than for us, say, doing that as um, an ETF provider. That being said, you know, clearly if there's an opportunity in, in any market, we'll look at it. And you know, the commodities, I think, are coming much more now into focus than they have been really um, for the last 10 years, I would say. Um, we've certainly seen a lot of demand um, for some of the individual um, commodity ETFs, such as corn, et cetera, um, which obviously that's not a granite shares fund. Um, but I, I think it does pave the way for, for more investors to be interested in commodities more broadly and not just the broad commodity ETFs, but the individual commodities themselves. Gotcha. Now, Will, uh, since we have you here, it'd be a great time to talk about single stock ETFs. We have to talk about that since they launched last year to a lot of fanfare. Um, but in some ways, you know, they haven't taken off quite the same way that a lot of people had envisioned assets under management have been climbing recently. We've been seeing, seeing some pretty good performance with some of the tech-focused uh, single-stock ETFs tied to high flyers like NVIDIA, Met, et cetera. You know, what do you think, you know, uh, one year on from the launch of single-stock ETFs? Have they performed the way you envisioned? Have the assets uh, uh, been coming in the way you thought they would? So far, I mean, we've been pleased with it. Um, and you know we're we, we we launched the first batch in August last year, so we had obviously six months um, run in, broadly speaking, to the end of last year. And that was, um, as you remember, it was an incredibly difficult time for for tech stocks more broadly. And um, we had you know some of you know for example one of our more, more popular ones is a leveraged uh, ETF linked to Coinbase. And so in that time, you had the crypto crisis. Um, you had the FTX collapse and, you know, a lot of e- even worries about Coinbase itself. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult time for people to, to be leveraged long um, on some of those companies. And I think, you know, understandably, it maybe took a little bit of time to, to take off. Um, however, certainly since the beginning of the year, there's been, I'd say, a, a market turnaround, you know, as the markets you know, rallied in some of these stocks. Um, we've seen big interest, you know, not not just in stocks like Coinbase, but as you pointed out, things like Nvidia, Tesla, you know, Apple, even Alibaba. That's a proxy for for the Chinese market. So you know, we're starting to see some good some good traction there, and I think um, it's a space that clearly there's demand for investors. It won't be necessarily the case that there's demand for every single company um, or every single stock, but I think among certain stocks that appeal to investors um the the products of uh, 
doing well and you know certainly seem to be embraced by investors. Have you gotten any feedback from the market or from actual investors as to who is using uh, the single stock ETFs and what they're using them for? Um, it's difficult to say because typically um, we talk to financial advisors and you know, obviously financial advisors typically not necessarily the market that's going to use these type of products. They're much more for active investors, particularly for investors who, who trade a lot more. Um, one thing we can tell just from the ownership reports that come in, there's a lot of activity from the proprietary trading firms. And so not just the sort of traditional market makers, but um, the proprietary trading firms, which uh, seem to be very active in these products. And then I think it's going to be your traditional retail investors that have active trading accounts with the major brokers um, in the country that are already perhaps very active um, in terms of buying and selling some of these stocks. We know that Clearly, stocks like Tesla, for example, are, are you know, among the among the top um, held stocks in the nation. And so, clearly, there's just huge interest um, in these stocks. The rise of or the popularity in um, you know zero day options uh, also sort of further, I, I think, enhances the story around people looking for short term alpha or short term you know trading ideas. And so these products fulfill that particular need. That's really interesting. Yeah, super interesting. And it definitely goes hand in hand with the rise of the retail investor slash trader we've seen since the pandemic. So, so Will, um, you know, I kind of got a two-parter for you with regard to these, these products. I just want to know, you know, what are your plans with these ETFs? Is it to launch more of them over time or kind of stick with the ones you have and then you know, right now, the highest leverage you offer is 1.75x. Is that essentially the most that the SEC will allow today? So first part of the question, then yes. I mean, clearly, our job as an issuer is to really present um, ideas, present products to the market that investors want. And, you know, when we find uh, an area of the market that uh, seems to be popular, you know, we try and develop that. Now, as I already said already, clearly, um, it, it's not going to be something that uh, we can do or there won't be appeal for every stock. Um, I think it's really more about certain stocks that capture the, the investing, the retail investor zeitgeist or the active trader zeitgeist, um, whatever you want to, however you want to look at it. Um, but clearly, there'll be certain stocks that, that people love to trade. Those stocks, I think, will do well. Um, in single stock format. And then as it regards to leverage, yes, I mean, 1.75, it's a little bit of a technical point, but um, the way this works is that under there was a new derivative rule that came in and it's um, really volatility-based and you have to have a reference benchmark um, for the fund or the strategy that, that you're employing. And that has to be a, a known or recognized benchmark. And you have a volatility score off of that particular benchmark. And first and foremost, you can't have more than two times leverage. That is, the, that is a hard-coded rule. Um, but the reason why a lot of the leverage ends up being less than two times is due to the volatility of the underlying stock versus the benchmark. So put 
as simply as I can, you know, the more volatile stocks will have the lower leverage amount. So for example, our Tesla, uh, long Tesla, which is TSL, uh, that's 1.25 times uh, leverage on Tesla. So the reason why that's a lot smaller was because when we did the volatility calculations at the time, uh, Tesla was a more volatile stock than say Alibaba, which um, is at 1.75 times uh, levered. So it, it, it's, it's kind of nuanced depending on the stock, but the, the shorthand which people should think about as to why these leverage factors are changing and understand it probably can be a little bit confusing is simply down to the volatility of the actual stock itself. So less volatile stocks will be much closer to maybe, maybe even two times, um, but highly volatile stocks won't even make it uh, into the leverage category itself. But if they do be 1.1, something like that. I'm not asking for like your company's like secrets or anything like that, but do you have any plan <laughs> to launch more of these types of products in the future? We do. So we, um, you know, all, all of this is, is public, but, you know, we have a registration statement that um, went effective, you know, last year, which we've launched um, two batches of products so far. So we launched the first batch in August, the second batch in December. So we still have a number of, of products on that list that we haven't brought to market, which we intend to bring to market. Um, it's really just about managing, you know, managing the and resourcing it from from our perspective. So we clearly don't want to be in a position where we overcommit and launch, you know, twenty products at once. Um, but we're we're bringing them out slowly. So yes, we we are going to bring out more. Um, and e even beyond that registration statement, I think we'll we'll clearly go where the demand is telling us to go. And clearly, investors, you know, contact us you know, all the time asking for some asking for stocks. You know, some. Some are possible, you know, some we just can't do, um, but we'll absolutely look to, to extend the offering. I'm looking forward to see what comes out from uh, Granite Shares next, but we'll have to end it there. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has been a really fun and interesting conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Heather. Thank you to me. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major pad podcast platform. See you next week.